Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Ben. Just a quick note before we start. This episode discusses themes of racial and sexual violence. In July 1972, Jack Hill's second movie with Pam Greer hit theaters, The Big Bird Cage. Meet the girls of The Big Bird Cage, enslaved to every cruel whim and desire of a ruthless madman. After finishing the movie in the Philippines, Jack returned to Los Angeles. He was looking for his next project when he got a call from AIP, the same studio where Pam once answered phones. AIP specialized in cheap, low-budget movies. And I went in for a meeting, and I was hoping to get something that I could really get into. And the first thing he said was, he says, we want a picture about a, a black woman's revenge movie where she kills the shit out of two guys in the opening scene. My first feeling was, oh, you know, a black picture. It's not something I really know about, not something that I really... But then I said, wait a minute. I can get Pam Gert for this. Jack called Pam and told her his dilemma. AIP wanted a black woman's revenge movie. Jack is white. He didn't know much about the black experience. Pam said sure, she'd help out with the writing. But she had one condition. She did not want to make a movie about a damsel in distress. I think we should show her not always a man helping her out of this situation, that she can get out of the situation herself. So that's all I want. And I said, and if you can't do it, then I walk. And if I go home, I'm not coming back. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. You're listening to Season 4 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, Pam Greer, and how she rose to become Hollywood's first female action hero. This is Episode 4, The Queen of Blaxploitation. Pam and Jack Hill started brainstorming. They created a character named Flower Child Coffin. Everyone called her Coffee. Coffee was a nurse working the night shift. But after she clocked out of the hospital, she became a vigilante. She went around killing bad guys. 
for one simple reason. Revenge. <laughs> a revenge nurse. <laughs> um, it's about a woman who takes on the crime bosses of her community because her little sister was brought into the, the drug and sex trade. Wouldn't you want to kill somebody who had done a thing like that to your little sister? What would you do? Kill all of them? Well, why not? Coffee is my mom. Many times I would come home from school or from work, and she would be patching up someone in the kitchen. Gunshots, knife wounds, you name it. If she found out who you were who did the harm, don't let her. She's going to let you know. I know your mama. I know your grandmama. Who do you think you are? Are you selling dope to the people? You're trying to bring everybody down. That's who coffee was. Pam and Jack had several script meetings. They talked about the characters, settings, even the music. They figured out action scenes. Pam was especially good at coming up with little character moments. She gave me some really good ideas, things that I could never have come up with on my own. I'll give an example. Putting a razor blade in the afro so that if you grabbed her hair, you yeah. I could never have come up with that. Never. I just wanted to see some authenticity in the clothing and stuff. And it wasn't 100%, but he did try. And it was great of Pam because she spent some time working with me without any guarantee that she would get the job. Casting in Hollywood is tricky. Pam knew that even though she helped create coffee, she might not get to play coffee. But Jack was the director, and when AIP started casting the movie, he insisted it must be Pam. I told him, absolutely, there's nobody else can do this role. So Pam got the part. She was the lead, the title character. Pam knew she couldn't star as coffee and go to school. She made a choice. Her dream of going to UCLA was replaced with a new dream of making it as an actor. In January 1973, a few days after the new year, coffee started shooting in more ways than one. My name's Coffee. I was treated like royalty. Cars, limousines, assistants, hair. There was so much thrown at me. Let's go. Everybody, clear back the camera, please. Coffee not shot in the Philippines. No, it's shot, it's in, Los shot in Los Angeles. Coffee, I had my own trailer. It was big. My trailer, you could live in it. I was supremely treated like a big star because Black Mama, White Mama was such a big success. Hey, what's happening? Coffee was a low-budget production. But compared to her experience in the Philippines, filming in L.A. was luxurious. I felt like a Barbie doll. I felt like someone was dressing me every day. Pam had escaped the women in prison movies. She ditched the skimpy prison T-shirts and was now wearing real outfits. But the wardrobe and coffee was still plenty revealing. I said, well, do I wear a bra in this one? They'd go, no, we didn't make one. I said, well, how am I going to do stunts without a bra? But they built support because they wanted to show cleavage. They wanted to show sexiness. There's a lot of sex and nudity in coffee. It was all part of the exploitation genre. Pam had been nude in the women in prison movies. She liked showing black women's bodies in a powerful and sexy way. She shows skin. If you just be the character, that's all I wanted to do, just be the character. So... 
you want to play with knives, huh? Well, you picked the wrong player. Please! There was plenty of violence in Coffee, too. But in most of the scenes, Pam is in control. As Coffee, Pam is constantly punching people, stabbing them, and blowing them away. I'm going to piss on your grave tomorrow. Many of these scenes had complicated stunts. Pam was athletic, but she was never trained to do stunts. There was hardly any black stunt men and no zero black stunt women. And we had stunts that we needed to do for Pam. We needed a stunt double. Jack Hill turned to his stunt coordinator for help. My name is Robert Miner. In the business, they called me Bob. Bob Miner was only 29 years old. As a stuntman, though, he was already famous. I was the first Afro-American in the All-White Stuntmen's Association. Two years later, I was second vice president and on the board of directors, yeah. Bob remembered a woman who might be able to double for Pam. He'd seen her at a horseback riding club. She would ride her horse in Burbank, and I would see her out there riding, and she kind of looked like Pam Greer, and I said, wow, this girl would make a good double for Pam Greer. And I said, you know, I have this movie coming up. And I said, ah, man, I sure would like you to be a stunt girl for somebody. She said, oh, you got a movie? You ain't got no movie. I said, yes, I do have a movie. She thought I was a guy that was just trying to put the make on her. (laughs) The woman's name was J.D. David. She was 22 years old and studying to be a nurse. You could almost shoot me pretty close dead on from a distance, and I would look just like Pam. Our bodies, our structure is the same. Also, our facial structures, for some reason, on camera, we look a lot alike. J.D. left nursing school and started learning stunt work. There were not a lot of African-American actresses that needed to be doubled. If something had to be done, they either hired an African-American male or a white woman to do the doubling. Stunts need a lot of careful choreography and a lot of clever editing. If Pam is getting thrown over a table by one of the stunt girls, you'll see the stunt girl grab Pam like she's getting ready to throw her, and she'll make the move like she's going to throw her, then we cut. J.D. would then step in for Pam, and J.D. is the one who actually gets thrown over the table. I know that's J.D. and not Pam, but the audience don't know that either. The audience think it's Pam, but it's J.D., so that's how we fool you. Coffee took just 18 days to shoot. In movie time, that's incredibly fast, light speed. Shooting quickly is one of the ways AIP saved money. Even during that short time span, J.D. got to know Pam. She wanted to come out and ride my horses. And I really didn't know what her ability was on a horse. She said she could ride a horse, but a lot of people say they can ride a horse. So she came out to my house, we saddled up and went for a ride. And actually, she was quite the equestrian. I mean, she might have been better than me, I'm not sure. But I was really impressed with her. So in other words, what she said she could do, she actually could do. She wasn't like some other actresses that pretend like they can do stuff and can't do it. Pam had it all. She had the looks, the agility, the skills, the coordination. She had the talent. Bob Miner was so impressed with Pam, he allowed her to do some of her own stunts. I have her do a fight scene. I have her grab somebody. I might have her slap somebody. If she had to do a little 
roll or something. There's nothing that would hurt her. Even so, mistakes happen. A few days into the shoot, Pam got injured. There was a time where I was running and I'd sprained my ankle, severely fractured in my foot. So they painted a cast to look like my boot. And I limped along the freeway trying to pretend I wasn't hurt. You're telling me you're, you were basically with a broken foot and a cast painted to be the color of your boot? Mm-hmm. Because you're limping, but that's so I'm you're limping. not faking that limp. That's I'm a not limp. faking. I'm trying not to limp. I'm kind of running on my toes so that I don't hit the, the ankle, the bone, and move it and, and, and go down in pain. We've got to finish that scene. With Pam's foot still in a cast, Coffee finished shooting. It hit theaters three months later. Coffee, where the action is, there coffee is. The picture opened, I think, number six at the box office. And the next week, it was up to number one, which means advertising is not doing it. It's word of mouth that's doing it. Coffee. Moviegoers went to see it two, three, four times. Theaters held it over for weeks. In August, three months after Coffee opened, it hit number one at the box office. Coffee knocked James Bond out of the top spot. Live and Let Die, that year's Bond movie, dropped down to number two. By the way, Live and Let Die was written by my cousin, Tom Mankiewicz. It's a good thing we Mankiewiczs don't hold grudges. Just to get back to coffee, which is actually, I think, pretty good, the grosses at the box office were not just grosses from black audiences. It was what they called a crossover audience. Women and men, black or white, coffee made an impression on just about everyone who saw it. This is a film I've watched dozens and dozens of times. Jacqueline Stewart is the director of the Academy Museum and one of the hosts of Turner Classic Movies. The opening sequence to Coffee, I think it's a perfect encapsulation of how all black exploitation films set up their narratives and kind of work stylistically. We're in a nightclub, of course, and this funky music is blaring. And this kind of two-bit hustler comes in looking for the big man. There he is sitting with this kind of multicultural bevy of Tail, I believe that's what he calls these women. Even white tail, as he points out. And the two-bit hustler tells him, I've got something special for you in your car. This woman who's amazing, who will do anything for a fix. If I say she's something special, she's something special, man. And he's obviously alarmed by this and goes to see what's in this car. (laughs) Opens the door, and here's Pam. Hey, she's up. Too much for me. So she's in this really kind of like strappy, short, low-cut mini dress, looking amazing, cheekbones, you know, that gorgeous nose she has, just everything about her looking amazing, but she's abject, sexually abject, like willing to do anything. And I know what you want, too, and you're going to get it. She lures the guy into the car, and then we get this long sequence of just driving. So we get the opening credits over the theme song for the film, Coffee, by the amazing Roy Ayers. Coffee is the color of your skin. Coffee is the world you live in. So you get everything, the nightlife, it's the dark streets of L.A., it's the car driving through. 
The scene ends with Coffee revealing that she's not strung out at all. She's pretending to be wasted to get close to the big man, close enough to kill him. I don't understand with the outfit she had on, where she could have possibly been concealing a sawed-off shotgun, but she has one, and she does what she feels she needs to do to avenge her sister, who is strung out on drugs. This is the end of your rotten life, you motherfucking dope pusher! Then she goes to her job at the hospital where she's a nurse. For most moviegoers, Coffee was the first time they'd ever seen Pam Greer. I wasn't seeing the movies. I was just seeing this image of Pam Greer. Quentin Tarantino was a 10-year-old boy when Coffee opened. His mom didn't allow him to go see it. But everywhere he looked, there was Pam. The TV spots and the movie posters and the one sheets and the soundtrack albums and the newspaper advertisements, it was this image of Pam in what always looked like a bikini to some degree or another with that big afro and a sawed-off shotgun. There wasn't a white equivalent to that. Raquel Welsh would do an action movie from time to time, but she wasn't like coffee, all right? She's not blowing guys' heads off with a sawed-off shotgun. Six years later, when Quentin finally saw coffee for the first time, it did not disappoint. It's the best revenge movie ever made. I don't want to go too crazy on the idea that Coffee is a great movie. There's a lot of, you know, it's it's very amateurish. But I do think that Coffee is one of the most entertaining movies ever made. It's one of the funnest revenge movies ever made. It's just entertaining. It's, it's a blast. It's funny. It's just a hoot. Much of the humor in Coffee comes from Pam's performance, like when she's going undercover as a Jamaican prostitute named Mystique. Now, I don't do no leather work, man. No whips, ropes, chains, or none of those fetish freaks. Just plain sex. You're having a bit of an internal struggle while you're watching it in the first 20, 30 minutes about the laughs. You're like, okay, am I laughing at the movie or am I laughing with the movie? And I suspect most audiences might think they were laughing at the movie. But then the story starts working. You start caring about the Pam Greer character. And about midway through, you're like, no, 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 no. I, I, I think I'm laughing with the movie. No, no, no. Oh, and, and actually, that was supposed to be funny. No, no, this is supposed to be. No, this is actually genuinely witty. Coffee, disguised as Mystique, goes to work for a pimp named King George. He appears halfway through the movie, wearing a yellow jumpsuit, sporting a big feathered hat, and carrying a diamond cane. He even has his own theme song. Got the great music and the great clothes, and King George looks fantastic in his uh, pimp leisure wear, and the afros and the Cadillacs, and you know, they hang out at the total experience at the very beginning, which was the big black nightclub in Los Angeles at the time. What not to love? But not everything in coffee is played for laughs. There is a sadistic thread that runs throughout coffee, and which Pam has to deal with. That's film historian and author Donald Bogle. One particular scene in Coffee is hard to forget. It's also hard to watch. It depicts racist violence. And for viewers, including me, it is shocking to see. At one point in Coffee, King George crosses the wrong people. They abduct him, point a gun at him, and then take out a noose. 
King George. He has a rope tied around his neck and he's outside of a car and the other end of the rope is tied to the car. And these two men are driving off and he's running because he knows he's going to die. From my perspective at that time, it was sort of prolonged and it was kind of agonizing to see it. I asked Jack Hill about the lynching scene. After all, he wrote it. I got that idea because that had actually happened in Los Angeles when I was younger. That was actually, you know, I, uh, I don't know if that was a good idea or not, but uh, I wanted to make something really brutal so that you're really rooting for coffee to get these guys. If you're going to do a revenge story, you want to build it so that the person doing the revenge has really powerful reasons. Pam says black audiences recognized this level of violence. It wasn't unrealistic to them. She was worried that the scene didn't go far enough. I would see files from friends who were police officers. And I was saying, I hope we're close. I hope it's as gross and grotesque and horrible as these files, because the audience has seen a lot more than we're showing. The lynching scene is one of the most exploitive parts of the whole movie. It's exploiting the audience's emotions, their visceral reaction to real lynchings. The scene was even part of the movie's marketing. The poster for coffee includes artwork of King George with the noose around his neck being dragged by the car. The scene put race front and center. It leaned into it in the most provocative and uncomfortable way. Race was being dealt with in some way, and race problems, social issues, and the drug issue, and what was happening to the community. And in this sense, one kind of lynching with King George, but there were other ways of which the community had been lynched or been destroyed. Watching the lynching scene 50 years later, it's still powerful, still awful, and so hard to watch. Coffee may be a low-budget exploitation movie, but it has the weight of history behind it. I mean, I really think that they are addressing the unfinished business of slavery, to be honest, where they are just opening up these wounds and pointing to them. They work as plot points, clearly, justifying vengeance. But then I think they're also just really openly addressing things that are unresolved, these questions that are totally and still unresolved. Coming up, Pam makes a horror film, a gladiator movie, and reteams with Jack Hill for the most iconic role of her career. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. After coffee, Pam was in demand. She quickly shot two more films back to back. The first was for AIP. It was a sequel to a horror movie, a black exploitation horror movie. Scream, Blackula, Scream. The bloodiest legend of our time. This time, Pam had a supporting role, but she did get to scream. Scream, Blackula, Scream was filmed in February and released in June. By then, AIP realized that Pam was their biggest star. Pam Grier, the exciting star of Coffee. Pam's next movie was for Roger Corman in 1974. Roger had major success with his women in prison movies. Now, Roger had two big ideas. He wanted to make a female gladiator movie set in ancient Rome, and he wanted to reteam Pam with her co-star from Black Mama, White Mama. Pam Greer is the fiery Nubian slave. I am a Maui. Margaret Markoff is the beautiful high priestess. They called the movie The Arena, and it was shot on location in Italy. When Pam returned to the States, she found that her breakout movie was still going strong. Coffee, baby. I'm glad to see you. No! I think you better know that all your friends are dead. I killed them all. It was intense for people to see a woman close up who is angry and seeking revenge and being strong after being abused, standing up, finding the strength to get back in the ring. I don't know how I did it. It seems like I'm in a dream. One day, Coffee's director, Jack Hill, snuck out to see the movie. He wanted to see how it was playing in theaters. It would take much for me to kill you now. First, I went to see it in a theater in Pasadena, which is basically a black neighborhood, and the audience was mostly almost entirely black people. The audiences reacted to everything. People stood up and yelled back at the screen and shouted. And I thought, this is what, <laughs> this is a catharsis, you know, what theater is supposed to do. Coffee, baby. You got to understand, I, I thought you were dead. Coffee got similar reactions all across the country. AIP called Jack and said, whatever you did, we want you to do it again. Give us another coffee. So Jack got to work on a sequel. Were there any black people involved in the development process? No, no, no. The the development process was just me sitting down with a little bit of coke and coming with whatever came into my head. (laughs) Um, Just to be clear, we're we're not talking about a beverage. No, Coca-Cola is very bad for you. Jack Hill wrote a script. Then he got the gang back together. Pam signed on to star. Bob Miner came back to be the stunt coordinator. J.D. David returned as Pam's stunt double. 
It was originally a real sequel that was called Burn Coffee Burn. At the last minute, just before we started shooting, the sales department said, we don't want any more sequels. Sequels are not doing well. So some genius in the sales department came up with the title Foxy Brown. I was appalled. I, I thought it was demeaning, you know. Turned out I was wrong. How wrong can you be? Pam Greer, that one chick hit squad who creamed you as coffee, is back to do a job on the mob as Foxy Brown. Foxy Brown needed to be different from coffee. Jack rewrote the script and made it more extreme. The violence, the sex, the language, the humor, everything was amped up. And so I just figured, I'm just going to give it to them as outrageous as I can make it. And he did, creating a truly original character. Now, I only got so much control, and I'm liable to put one of these right between your eyes, no matter what Mom would say. Foxy is a, a more aggressive version of coffee, sexier, more sophisticated. She's a little bit more deadly. She's going to do what she needs to do. So if the inspiration, the core of coffee, this nurse is your mom, I'm curious whether the core of Foxy is maybe Aunt it's, Wild it's Aunt my aunt. It's, it's my aunt. My aunt, she was so beautiful and, and honest and sincere about her confidence and her sexuality. And not a lot of women would love motorcycles and would buy their own Thunderbird. Just daring. And it just, she was just walked in the room and just like blow people away. You think you're back in with those people, but they gotta stick a dynamite up your ass and the fuse is burning. You understand me? The stuff that can happen in a black exploitation film, the stuff that happens in Foxy Brown, it's insane. Raquel Gates is a film professor at Columbia University. It's like thing after thing after thing. It's it's her reaching into her afro and pulling out a gun, and then it just keeps going. The movie begins with Foxy Brown's boyfriend getting gunned down by a drug cartel. Foxy then sets out to avenge his death. But along the way, she goes undercover as a prostitute. She's kidnapped and held hostage and assaulted by these, like, racist rednecks who are also dealing drugs. It's true. One of the ways Foxy Brown ups the violence is that Foxy herself is drugged then sexually assaulted. Remember, Pam was sexually assaulted in real life. There's a rape scene in uh, Foxy Brown. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there's any rape scene that's not difficult to watch. That one is particularly difficult to watch, and even more so because of your own past. How was that to shoot? It was okay. I, I survived it. It wasn't as brutal as the ones that I had taken, and I had been experience. And um, I had to make sure I didn't snap because that could happen. And I let them know, you know, that that could happen. That's a possibility that I may not get through this. Not only did Pam get through the scene, she was the one who figured out how Foxy escapes. Her hands and feet were tied to the bed, but she grabs a nearby razor blade with her mouth. Yeah, she told me that she had figured that out, and she came, and that was her idea. She had tried to practice it and said, look, why don't we do this? Yeah. I said, okay, good. Foxy cuts herself free from the ropes and goes on the attack, 
She's outnumbered, but she catches the bad guys off guard and burns them alive. Foxy Brown gets her revenge, but rape is used as a plot device, and during her escape, Pam's breasts are exposed to the camera. Watching this scene, it's not just uncomfortable, it's confusing. Yes, Pam is the hero, but the film is also exploiting her, not just her character, but her as a person, her sexuality, and her race. That discomfort, that conflict, lay at the heart of black exploitation, And as the genre came under fire, so did Pam. After the break, Foxy Brown explodes onto screens. Have no fear, Pam Greer is here as Foxy. If Coffee is the movie that made Pam a star, Foxy Brown is the film that made her an icon. Again, film professor Raquel Gates. Even the opening credits for Foxy Brown, which are really cool and, you know, in terms of their aesthetics, but it's all about the silhouette of her body. Pam Greer is so body forward. The tops are low and everything is tight. You know the shape of her body even when she's clothed. She used her body as a weapon. These corrupt men all wanted her and wanted her for one thing. And she's able to use her body to turn against them. Donald Bogle says what elevates Foxy Brown is the rawness of Pam's performance. You know, Pam Greer was not a trained actress. When you hear her in films, this applies to Coffee and to Foxy Brown, the voice, it seems authentic because, again, it's not a trained voice. It could be your brother, too, or your sister. She has these lines where, you know, well, what is it you want or what is it we can do? And she says, I want justice. What is it you really want? Justice. I want justice for all of them. And I want justice for all the other people whose lives are bought and sold so that a few big shots can climb up on their backs. All of this is said with conviction. Sister, I think what you're asking for is revenge. You just take care of the justice, and I'll handle the revenge myself. Pam is so good in Foxy Brown, and the film has so much style, it's easy to forget it was made by AIP. So it was made quickly, and it was made cheaply. It was extremely violent, too. People are shot, maimed, run over, set on fire. One unlucky guy is decapitated by the propeller of an airplane movie also has a shocking finale. Foxy Brown ends with, like, Pam Greer's character castrating a man, putting his genitalia in a pickle jar, and giving it to his girlfriend. Like, you you can't do that anymore. (laughs) Uh, Why did you kill me, too? Death is too easy for you, bitch. I want you to suffer. Jack Hill says that AIP wanted the movie to push the limits of good taste, and he understood the assignment. Basically, what I thought I was doing was just throwing this thing away. They want this, 
I'll give it to him big time. I had no idea then that this movie would become this iconic thing, you know, and I, oh, God, what did I do? So when coffee is finished, Foxy Brown's going to open up a few months later. Foxy Brown hit theaters in April 1974. AIP sent Pam all over the country to promote it. We didn't have like a, a satellite type of opening or premiere at 100 theaters in from a hotel. We had to fly to each and every one, every opening of my film in a theater. Pam met scores of fans in city after city. I couldn't walk on the street. I couldn't go. It'd be 5,000 people. Everybody had our coffee and Foxy Brown in their family. The Shiksa, Foxy Brown, <laughs> or the country girl, or the preacher's daughter, or there was all, and I always, they always came to the movie theaters. Pam was a sensation. Hot on the heels of coffee, Foxy Brown was another hit. Jack Silverman of the Silverman Corporation, who owned theaters, said, Pam, what you're doing is fantastic for the black community, for black women. They are coming to our theaters 10, 15 times, bringing their daughters, dads are bringing their sons. They're all coming to see you fight for your respect and dignity. Foxy Brown was making plenty of money in some theaters. Others refused to show it. They thought it was beneath them. So did a lot of people at AIP. There was so much racism. It was just like below the surface, you know, in those days. The people making the movies, a lot of them, not all, I can't say all, had nothing but uh, contempt for the movies they were making. Ah, it's a black picture, you know. Ah, it's just the black pictures. They couldn't put them in theaters because the theater owners were afraid they'd tear up the seats. Racism, I just racism... But AIP was one of the studios that did a lot of those black exploitation type movies, if that's what you want to call it. That's Bob Miner again, the stunt coordinator. The budgets that they had was very cheap budgets. Even when they put out stuff that we thought was junk, those movies made money because the Afro-American wasn't used to looking at the screen seeing a black hero on screen. Coffee and Foxy Brown were riding a wave of black exploitation films that began in 1971 with Shaft and Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Almost immediately, black exploitation became a lightning rod. But not all blacks are happy about their new heroes. Many complain that all that super strong, super violent, super stud stuff doesn't tell the full and complete story of black life. Many activists were concerned about them because they had this veneer of a kind of authenticity, but actually were you know, just intended to get money out of black audiences. Many say that blacks and whites are left with just another stereotype. One who says that is Junius Griffin of the National Association for the Advancement for Colored People. Junius Griffin was black exploitation's staunchest critic. In fact, he coined the term black exploitation. It was meant as a knock on the movies. And we cannot take merely an economic view of black exploitation. It is a moralistic view. This is Junius Griffin from a TV interview in 1972. 
some of us were so anxious to see blacks in meaningful roles. We were so anxious to see ourselves on the screen that we would do anything to get a vicarious victory over the system, not recognizing that once you get through that vicarious thrill of seeing a black man beat up a white man on the screen, you go back and you face the same evil system that you faced before you went there. Another prominent critic of black exploitation was a high-profile black actress, Cicely Tyson. Tyson worked in more mainstream Hollywood movies. Like uh, most blacks, I rushed to the movie houses, too, when they first started. Initially, they served a purpose. Uh, They made uh, the movie industry aware of the fact that there is a black market and that blacks will support films made for us and about us. This is Cicely Tyson in a 1972 interview. She saw that black exploitation was dominating the market for black movies. And there has to be a change because all of the films are too negative. They're perpetuating images that, for the most part, are unrealistic. When I make the statement, people say, well, listen, whites have the same things. They have James Bond, they have their godfather, but they also have their sound of music. They have their love story. They have their fiddler on the roof. They have a variety of films from which to choose. We have to get a balance. We have to get a balance of that's real. There was a whole coalition against exploitation that was around for a couple of years that was combating these types of films and wondering why Black people went to see them when they felt that we were being so disrespected. Film critic Odie Henderson grew up during the era of Black exploitation. As a young movie lover, he had a different perspective. There's always the comment that it shows negative aspects and stereotypes of Black people. But to be honest with you, in my neighborhood, There were drug pushers, there were pimps, there were hustlers. Everyone had a side hustle. I grew up broke. There wasn't a Cosby show. (laughs) There wasn't that kind of thing in my neighborhood. So seeing that, to me, was, you know, proving I existed in a way. In Hollywood, black exploitation was even more complicated. There was racism all over the industry back then. It was everywhere everywhere. Black exploitation opened doors for black actors, writers, directors, and crew members. A lot of people launched their careers through these films, like stuntwoman J.D. David. The first movie that I did, the name of the film, and I'm not going to repeat it in total because my family's old school and they told me never to say this word, but it was called The Legend of the N-Word, Charlie. A story of a black cowboy who set the whole West on fire. That disturbed me when Bob first told me about the name of the movie. These are the things that you had to deal with back in the 70s. That movie right there gave me my start. So like I said, a lot of people got their start and got established in the 1970s, no matter what the subject matter was. I didn't try to hide what the community was trying to hide because we can't solve the problems from hiding. Did you ever bristle at the criticism, no. sometimes from inside the black community, of, of black exploitation films? Mm-mm. The women loved it. One thing I learned from spending time with Pam, she is a remarkably open person, but she doesn't like talking about black exploitation. It came up a couple of times in our conversations. 
the black exploitation movies were basically cultural films that play a little harder, more funk to it, more slap at, you know, just more different. Pam thinks all the arguing and hand wringing over black exploitation was overblown, and that much of the criticism was driven by sexism. They were called black exploitation when, in fact, a lot of the men had done all these movies before I had stepped in a man's shoes. And then it became exploitative because the the black women have to fight for their identity. They have to fight. Men don't fight for them. So that's not true. <laughs> I can't even en- engage in this conversation with people. And I don't. i like, whatever. Pam puts up a strong front. She is strong. But she isn't coffee. She isn't Foxy Brown. Pam is more complex than any character she's played. The more we talked, the more I saw her anxieties and her fears. She has them, like all of us. And the truth is, she was hurt by black exploitation. She was the face of a genre that divided the black community and was dismissed by white Hollywood. Her celebrity was almost inseparable from controversy. As much as black exploitation helped build her career, it would also hold her back. On our next episode, Pam struggles to find roles as the exploitation craze comes to an end. And then that's when I started taking screenwriting lessons, going to school and finding out how to write a screenplay. And she falls in love with Hollywood's hottest young comedian. Other things that give people a wrong impression of Puerto Ricans are like movies, like West Side Story set us back a hundred years. Because if you saw the movie, it made people think that all we did was stand in streets going... Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editors are Joanne Farian and Sherry O'KK. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris. Script writing by Yaakov Friedman, Rachel Pilgrim, Angela Carone, and me. Yaakov Friedman is our senior producer. James Sheridan is our researcher and fact checker. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Julie Bitton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, Allison Fire, Phil Richards, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Taryn Jacobs, Carolyn Wigmore, Dexter Fedor, Marcy Sacco, Genevieve McGillicuddy, and Mark Wins, and the entire TCM marketing team. Special thanks to Bruce Shapiro at Columbia University's Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma. Original music in the podcast comes from the band Cadillac Jones. Believe it or not, their bass player is also our lawyer, John Renault. Thanks to John, Kristen Hassel, and Salang Moulton. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. Our executive producer is Charlie Tavish. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Pam's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. 
or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.